0: Back to the non standard 14er podcast, the podcast that talks about everything the route description leaves out about hiking Colorado's 14ers. We're joined today by U.S. Forest Ranger, uh, but first we have Walk Mode Patrick joining the podcast. Hey, yo, and we also have Tornado Man joining the podcast again. Yo, what's up? And so we're welcoming Ranger Katie Nelson to the podcast.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on, Chris.
0: And so we started this podcast like almost year and a half ago, kind of just, we were telling the same stories around the fire and we thought we would record it. And it kind of sprung into some camaraderie and a bunch of different interviews. And so we kind of just think of it as like conversation over a beer, over the campfire, talking about with 14 er enthusiasts. And I was uh, reading outdoor Colorado. I came across you and some of your coworkers quoted about the, the Maroon Bell's reservation system. And then I was wondering about the conundrum permits and we've always wanted to do a leave no trace kind of episode. So that's how we, I kind of thought about reaching out to you. And that's how Patrick and Andrew, I stumbled upon uh, Katie.
1: Nice. Well, I'm glad you reached out. And when you said chatting around beers around a campfire, I was like, oh, you're speaking my language. <laughs> nice. And congrats on all the 14ers. I have to tell you um, today, I took the Jerry Roach book off my shelf that I bought when I moved to Colorado Years and years ago. So that was kind of fun. So, it was, yeah, it was fun to just take that off the shelf and kind of get my brain into 14er mode.
0: And so, how long, what's your story? How'd you get to Colorado and how'd you get to Aspen and how you, do you become a, what's your position? Are you at the US Forest Service, right?
1: Yeah. So I work for the US Forest Service. And my current position, I'm working on my title and I'm oscillating between wilderness and trails program manager and wilderness and trails specialist because I kind of end up wearing both hats, Um, but really my realm is wilderness and trails here on the Aspen Sobris Ranger District.
0: And how long have you been there?
1: Let's see, so I've been here for four years, and I have been with the Forest Service since, gosh, 2010, which is kind of hard to believe. I worked seasonally for years. I was a wilderness ranger, and um, then I moved here for this position, but I actually got my start with the national park service in Colorado in 2005. And I went to college in Nebraska and I literally graduated. And I think the next day I was like, my tires were squealing. I moved to Colorado because I knew I wanted to be in the mountains and had, had made the trek from Nebraska out here many times. And yeah, so I, it was like, I guess that's my story, right? Like I, grew up in Nebraska. I went to college and really with the end goal that I just knew I wanted to move to the mountains and then was really fortunate that I landed in this career. You know, I don't, I was not the person who knew what they wanted to be when I grew up. I think I knew where I wanted to be. (laughs) Um, And so I just got really lucky. So I, I know it sounds cheesy to say, but I really, I feel really fortunate to do the work I do where I do it. So it's cool. I'm really, yeah, I feel, feel very fortunate.
0: What's your education background? Did you you said you didn't know you wanted to be in forest service or wildlife when you're in college?
1: No, listen, I wanted to be Helen Hunt and Twister. (laughs) (laughs) So I grew up in Nebraska and I mean the storms there were epic. Um I missed those. But when I went to college, I didn't know what I wanted to do, except I was like, yeah, that seems cool. I'll be a tornado chaser. (laughs) And then I had this amazing calculus professor who convinced me to be a math major. So I'm actually a math nerd at heart. And so I went, (laughs) I went on and got my mathematics degree for no other reason than I liked it. And I thought, Oh, this will be really interesting. And then again, as soon as I was done, I was like, okay, now I can move and go live and work outside. So that was my story. I, I, uh, yeah, I went to school for math and then (laughs) moved moved to Colorado afterwards
2: so you should you should and for kids out there it's you know pay attention in math because one day you could be a park ranger a, a forest ranger <laughs> yes that's incredible
1: yeah I mean don't get me started I could I could sell math for days I love it and it's it's steeped into everything I do so and I think it has open doors for me um so <laughs> yeah I yeah, I love math um, and I'm, I'm glad I did it. I just, again, I, I am so envious of people who had that vision from when they were young, but I just, I, I feel like I just kind of kept kept taking steps and was still able to land where I landed. So it's kind of fun to like go back through the ticker tape.
0: So do, do people call you Ranger? Do you, how do you refer to yourself? Do you make your friends <laughs> call you Ranger Nelson or Ranger Katie or? <laughs> Oh,
1: that's so funny. I don't make anyone call me that. I, I have been called Ranger Nelson before. Yeah. I, I yeah, I'd say <laughs> yeah. Ranger Nelson sticks. Um, I have good friends who just, who love to call me that when I was a wilderness Ranger, uh, it's a dirty job. I mean, it's an amazing job with a beautiful office, but it's hard work and you're dirty and you're cutting trees and you're clean up trash and at fire pits and you get dirty and I I found out later that people were calling the Ranger pen <laughs> So that was a good one too but thankfully it didn't
0: stick. So what's your average day now as as your position right now in the uh is White White River National Park? Well, there's like three different US there's like a giant US forest, right? There's like six US forests and then there's like sub forests and then there's like different districts or how does that work?
1: Yeah, great question. I I think it it's it's confusing. So, and they're all invisible lines on a map, right? So that, yeah. So I work for the White River National Forest, and that's kind of the 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 bigger umbrella. And then within the White River National Forest, there's multiple districts. So essentially, the White River, you know, kind of west central Colorado, you know, other places on the White River like Hanging Lake or um, Quandary or you know, the Marine Bell Snowmass Wilderness, so the forest is big, and then it's divided into districts, and so then I'm on the Aspen-Sobris Ranger District, which for folks who are are familiar, that's essentially kind of the Roaring Fork Valley and the surrounding mountains, so I think it's about 750,000 acres. You, I'd want to fact check that, give or take, but that's kind of how it works, and then, you know, there are other forests um, across Colorado and then across the nation, so yeah, I'm on one forest of which there are many um, in the state and then across the US.
0: And so <clears throat> White River National Forest covers the conundrum hot springs, which is your background there. Yeah. And you've been they've been permitting that for what, three, four years now?
1: Let's see. So the permit system went live in April of 2018. So there have been three permitted seasons.
2: And how is how is that? How would you you would say that uh, for the first three years of that, how how well has it been working uh, since you have instituted the, the permit system?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I would say, I think it's working, and it kind of depends on what you know. What what does working mean? So I'll share kind of why I say that. You know, I I think what's working is the the goal with you know the permit system at Conundrum Hot Springs. Was really to get a handle on some of those what we call biophysical impacts, but like physical impacts on the ground that were occurring, simply because it's an amazing place and lots of people wanted to visit. And as you can imagine, and I'm guessing you guys have been up there, yeah, I see head shakes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's only so much space up there, and so there were just a lot of impacts occurring, you know, tree damage and and campsites and human waste and all the things we've talked about, and so that permit system has been successful in that it limits the number of people up there. And so, you know, there's space for those people to camp without creating additional impacts. I think it's successful there, right? It's it's kind of setting up a sustainable number of people to be up there on a nightly basis without creating those additional impacts. So we've seen some improvements up there. There was some really heavily impacted areas and we were able to do some rehab and it's sticking. So that's, pretty cool to see because sometimes you go and you know you guys see you guys nodding but you rehab an area and it just gets it's kind of this um whack-a-mole or you feel like you're chasing your tail but because we send the number of groups up that where there's the appropriate number of campsites for them some of that rehab has taken so that's neat so I would call that a success I'd say additionally um you know anecdotally we've myself and then um wilderness rangers who've been up there people seem to be enjoying that experience. And I think that's, you know, a a measure of success. And I've talked to some locals who have said to me, like, I didn't go up there for years, it was a mess, and I'm going to go and I got a permit, you know, so I think for those reasons, it's successful. But there's always the other side of the coin, right? Like there are people who can't get a permit, or, you know, there are always trade offs, like I won't sit here and pretend that a permit system is a silver bullet, but there are some, you know, I think some trade-offs in this case with Conundrum that have been a success. And, the, and you know, I'm a public servant and the public was saying like, you guys got to do something. Like <laughs> this is rough, there's trash, there's human waste, it's a party scene. And like, this is not what, this is not how we want this place now or in the future. So um, it's not perfect, but I would say it helped turn a co- corner, both just for the, you know, the physical landscape and also just for the people who go up there to visit and it's a hard trek. so yeah.
0: I didn't realize that you can't just like say like we're gonna permit this. You need like years worth of actual hard data to say like there's this much trash, there's this many unmarked fire, you know, there's this many people pooping and leaving their toilet paper in the middle of nowhere. And I thought it was like maybe 2011 or something when you started collecting data. I was I was surprised how far back You collected data before you actually installed the permit system.
1: Yeah, I mean it's not a decision that's taken lightly, and I guess personally and professionally, I appreciate that because it's it's not a small deal, right? Like it's it's a big deal to institute a permit. You're (laughs) you're asking visitors to do something very different. You're you're definitely you know changing the scene, if you will, up there. So it isn't a decision that's taken lightly, and um, again, it's public land. So there was a, a really um, robust outreach effort to say, hey, you know, people are coming and saying, look, this, <laughs> you need to do something up there. And, and so there was a pretty neat process that unfolded to just say, okay, here's the options on the table. And one of those is a permit. What do you think? And so, um, you know, we got the blessing of the public and we had a lot of, you know, data to back that up so that it's not just kind of a, you know, a, uh, what's the right word? Like, just a like desperate quick decision, you know? So I think that's part of the success of it is that it, it, you know, it's it's hard because it's slow, but I think because it was very intentional and we had years of data to back it up and then um, a supportive public, I think we got to a good place, but yeah, lots of data behind that. It's
0: Are the permits only for like the 17 or so designated camping sites around there? Like, do you need a permit to hike in four miles and camp in that valley? Or just day trip to the Conundrum Hot Springs without a permit.
1: So you do not need a permit to go for the day. And some people do. I mean, it's it's a big day, but people go in for the day, so you don't need a permit for that. And then, as of now, it's basically the upper half of the valley that if you're going to go camp overnight in that upper half of the valley, you have to reserve a permit and camp in one of those campsites. The lower half of the valley so for folks who are familiar with it that's like um below you know lower in elevation than silver dollar pond which is where that second bridge is that you don't need a permit for Um, we have people who camp down there and hike to the hot springs i don't encourage it because i just don't think i mean i mean it's okay but you're just not getting the same experience i always tell people who ask me that like hold out Get a permit go up go camp up there like get the full experience but some people choose to camp in that lower valley and then make trek
3: so do you have um an idea based of how many people there were spending the night before the permit and how many there are now like how much has that changed
1: yes and can i just say i love that your cat is on your lap and just hanging out <laughs> <laughs> Just one, made- one
3: of my many cats.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay. So to answer your question, yes. What I'll share on that is on, so pre-permit on a peak weekend, which you guys could guess would be, you know, the, the desirable weekends in like July, August, even in September, there were days when we had, you know, 150 to 200 people camped up there. And I see you kind of raising your eyebrows and shaking your head and, you know, again, it's, it's no malicious intent by people who want to be up there. There's just not a good place to camp, right? Like that is an impact, you know, that you're not creating additional impact. So again, pre-permit that wasn't every day, right? Like there were quieter weekdays, but the peak weekends, 150 to 200, we have, you know, multiple days like that. The way the permit system is designed now, there's 20 campsites, and if all 20 campsites are filled to their maximum group size, I believe it's 66 people. That's embarrassing, it's either 64 or 66, I'll, I'll look. <laughs> so some people might say, oh my gosh, 66 feels like a lot. Some people might say, oh, 66 doesn't feel that many, but that was based on the number of um, campsites that were existing up there that we felt like kind of met those you know, qualities of a a a sustainable or right, a, a good a good campsite for people to go up and camp. And so we just um yeah, we permitted those 20 20 campsites. And if they're all full at 66, I think. But they're not not all of them fill. You know, some people don't like a four-person campsite, some people go up with two. So yeah.
0: And you can't have fires in those sites, right? <sighs>
1: uh so campfires are not allowed up there. And sp- the specific reason for that, and that's tough, right? Because people love campfires. I do too. But the reason why specifically up there, we don't allow them. One, it's that high elevation, the hot springs sit at 11,200 feet. So what wood there is to burn up there, a lot of it's krumholts. You know, and that, I mean, it's super, you know, those trees are, could be a couple hundred years old. So there's not a lot of great wood to burn, first of all. And what's there are, you know, those amazing old trees. And then two, just the high volume of people. With that many people up there and wanting to have fires, things quickly get denuded. So oftentimes in those really high visitation areas, that's why, you know, just over time, you know, a couple thousand people having a fire every night, it it gets pretty picked over.
3: Where'd she go?
0: Yeah, I think uh, she disappeared. That's her name. Let's see here. I'm curious what they do about uh think they require wag bags or in the maroon Bell wilderness or conundrum even at 66 people a day that's still a lot of a lot of poop Well you know
2: the, the LNT they're starting to talk about um and I think CFI even uh, had a post recently about that too is they're starting to talk about that uh, you know the cat hole in certain scenarios is no longer they're talking about will be no longer sort of the, the standard for for your waste disposal and that's because one at, at high altitude your waste doesn't just you know doesn't degrade as fast as it does at lower altitude but another great organization we could get somebody on uh, to talk about you know the different ways that they're, they're trying to, to educate there's a lot of people moving here that like their dream was to move to Colorado and in 2020 for all of its it's downfall, you know, there's, yeah, there's
0: your cartoon. Yeah, I wanted to show this to Tornado, man. because so I, I reached out to Katie when I was talking to her through email. She's trying to figure out how to get that out of Trailhead and see if we can test my theory that when you teach people about the tragedy of the commons, it might help regulate people to act better. <laughs> this is a cartoon I use in my class, Tornado, man, when I, when I teach public goods and, and common goods in my one lecture. So yeah, one person can do it, but if everyone thinks the same selfish way, then it doesn't work, right? You didn't All miss right. much. You missed a 10-minute conversation about pooping in the wilderness.
1: Oh my <laughs> gosh. Did you guys talk about the poop flow chart?
0: I we, we don't know what the poop flow chart is, no. Oh, no, we gotta know about this now, though.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the poop flow chart, I just saw it the other day. And uh, what I saw, I think it's a cooperation between the Forest Service and Leave No Trace. And if you Google that, uh, it comes up and it's this awesome flowchart, which I'm a fan of, that gives you a, kind of a decision tree for pooping in the woods, and I loved it. I thought it was the most clever thing ever.
3: Huh. Did you look it up. I'm, I'm going the there right now. I gotta
0: see this. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that's the like when you get a permit a conundrum? Are you given a wag bag or, or what's the what's the deal with? trying to maintain that many people, that much waste in the Conundrum Creek Valley.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a challenge up there. So, you know, the the kind of the gold standard, I guess, if you will, would be to dig a cat hole, but that requires you to be, you know, 70 big step, steps away from water and campsites. And that's tricky to do up there. In addition to the fact that there's just a high concentration of people. And so, yes, we do provide human waste bags at the trailhead, which is essentially a bag and, that allows you to carry out your poop. You know, I I was in the climbing word, world for a while. And I think there's like, that's maybe a little more commonly accepted. And we were curious what people would do with that, you know, especially where there's a lot of never evers that visit Conundrum. That's their first backcountry experience. And, you know, it's an interesting concept. <laughs> and we've had a lot of people who, who use them and you know, like them. And I, it's really, you know, helped the the poop situation up there for sure. Did you guys find the poop flow chart yet?
2: Yeah. Yep. It's great. <laughs> you know, I think I belong to a trailhead and just like, you know, like right next to Stifler's, uh, cartoon that he uses when he teaches <laughs> those two together. could be very powerful so the flow chart for people that understand it you know sometimes some people look at flow charts and they're like Ugh, you know and then you have the cartoon version of tragedy of the commons and i think everybody can get that
1: <laughs> yeah you know uh, patrick i think that was your suggestion about posting it at the trailhead i've been thinking about that just as another tool for people to to um a a tool available to help people learn how to poop in the woods. Someone had to teach me, you know, (laughs) in fact, it was on my first 14 or I, that's when I was like indoctrinated into the little, you know, the shovel. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what's my friend telling me about? (laughs) It's funny to think about now, but I just always remember that. But, you know, it's like someone had to teach me. And so I love all these creative tools out there just to, to help people because it's, you know, I, Maybe some people are born with that, but I definitely had to have someone teach me. So I try to remember that because it's hard not to get frustrated.
0: What was your first 14-er?
1: Harvard. Oh. I, uh, it's been, gosh, it's been years, years since I've been on a 14-er. But I, I do feel like given my current role here, professionally I feel like (laughs) it's it's important context especially kind of because it comes up a lot and then personally it's also like a a great challenge so I I haven't yet but I am interested
0: have you done the four-pass loop I have Mm
1: -hmm. yeah it's amazing you know it's um that's also at the forefront of my professional world right now and I mean it's a world-class route right it's it's why It's why I'm talking about it because it is, it's just such an amazing trip and it's really popular. And I, I feel like I can't remember which one of you asked me earlier, but like, what does my work world look like? Or I don't remember exactly how you framed it, but I just feel like we're at this really interesting time where it's just figuring out that path forward with these amazing places and a lot of people who want to visit them and then how you balance that if balance is possible. (laughs) with with preserving them you know in perpetuity theoretically so it's i i spend so much time thinking about it and i feel like right now more than ever that just seems to be the conversation and when you said four past sleep that's where my mind goes because you i'm guessing you guys have been up there too it's just it's breathtaking it's world class and also it's yeah some of it's pretty impacted so it's just really interesting You know, it's, I'm, I'm glad to be doing the work and it's also really hard.
0: (laughs) If you had a ton more funding, what would the forest service do? Would would they just have more Rangers constantly just hiking the trail and camping and being stewards and talking to people and giving fines or or how do you, what do you think if you had a big injection of of money and you doubled your staff or whatever, how would you preserve the four pass loop in the room bell wilderness?
1: Oh my gosh. I love that question. I wish that I did have that magical infusion. (laughs) Uh, I, so what would that look like? I think there would be this like (laughs) multi-faceted approach that I would take. And I think, you know, I think some of that would look like, you know, a robust educational effort because, I do think a lot of people visit and they don't visit with malicious intent. I really believe that. And I worked as a ranger for years and it was so hard not to get frustrated when you saw behavior that was damaging, but I truly am glad people are out in the woods. And I think oftentimes just getting people the information they need in a format that resonates with them can be really powerful. So honestly, I think with that magical infusion of money, I would... I think I would get more creative about how we reach people and the information we share about being visitors in the woods. Um, specifically with the four-pass loop, you know, I, the, the permit system is on the horizon there. You know, it's, it's the last tool in the belt, but it's a tool that works in conjunction with, you know, educational efforts and creative engineering. Um, so I, I would use some of that money to support that permit system. Um similar to conundrum. Gosh, what else would I do? To answer your question, no, I wouldn't just have, you know, a hundred rangers out there busting people and riding tickets. And that's not, I mean, that's not really the intent of a wilderness ranger, nor is it how I want to run the program, nor is it the experience I want people to have out there. That's also kind of a last resort. But I would, you know, I would have a more robust crew who's out there doing trail maintenance and um working at the trailheads. I'd, you know, I might, I might change our signs and um, Chris, you're, I, I might do your uh, pilot project.
0: I hope so. <laughs> I, I envision like getting grad students to like walk up the trails, picking up and counting poop and getting like data sets on if the cartoon helps, uh, curtail bad behavior.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What else would I do? I mean like educational videos and I, I don't know. I definitely, sometimes I'm like, I have big ideas and, some of them are hard to execute for, for budgetary reasons. And sometimes outside the box stuff is hard in my job, but I don't know, I would probably just kind of the, you know, the full spectrum, I would have a more robust crew and, you know, I I would also, I think invest a little more heavily in some of our interactions with the public and engaging in different media. And I don't know, it's a, it's a great question. I I love it. (laughs) Um, It's a happy thought to think about having those, you know, long-term sustainable resources to, to do the place and the public justice, you know?
0: But is there, there's no education component right now of getting a permit for conundrum, is there? You just apply for the permit and you get it, right? It's not, it's not like a hunter safety course is required to get your hunting license. Like, is that, the, is that the future? Is that the new thing, like wilderness permits where you need to take a two-hour class on leave no trace principles before you're issued your Colorado wilderness permit for the year
1: or? Oh,
2: That sounds like he's coming up with some legislation right here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll speak to the current, you know, what that looks like currently. So for Conundrum Hot Springs permits, we only issue those online uh, through recreation.gov. And so there is a lot of information on there, including this awesome video that Leave No Trace helped us make. And so there is educational information on there. And... I do think it works i mean honestly i think part of our success of that permit system is that i think people do get information out of that permit process even if they don't try i still think people would take something away from that and just as a a quick anecdote when so we we did that leave no trace video and it's a youtube video that basically says hey welcome to conundrum hot springs here's a couple of things we want you to do. You know, we want you to manage your poop. We want you to have a bear can, these things that we've continually struggled with. Right. And so we worked with leave no trace to do this awesome video. I mean, kudos to them and we have it on the permit website. And before the permit system went live, it had like 50 views or something, right. Us internally just rewatching it. And then, um, I think it has over like 10 or 15,000 views. And it's commensurate almost with the number of permits we issue. And so personally, I think that's really cool. And back to your point, it's a great way to get some information into people's hands. And again, I'm I'm like this eternal optimist. I think people really do want to take care of the places they visit. Sometimes they just don't know how. And so I think it's a great medium for people to get some of that leave no trace information and yeah. So there, so that's the educational component in addition to lots of text on that website. So that's the primary way right now that we disseminate that information. I mean, that's elsewhere on our forest service website and people call the front desk, but I think a lot of people that might be the only thing they interact with, if you will, before they go out and, and do their trip.
0: Do you remember, bear canisters is one of the one questions that another person that couldn't join the podcast today wanted to ask because and I, and I can say this is one of the
2: areas where I had been ignorant was, you know, growing up here in the mountains in Colorado, a bear bag was, was your, was your tent stuff sack with some paracord <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. and, yeah, and you went
2: 10 feet up in a tree and, and you tied it off and that was it. And so I, I think when, you know, when you hear bear bag, it's like, oh, yeah, I got a bear bag. No, but no, do you have like a bear sack? Like it's, uh, I forget what it's called, um, the brand. It's supposed to be like Kevlar or something. Um, luckily, when we were there, there was some people behind us had bear canister and they had room uh, for our stuff. But I think there was this moment, um, you know, with the people who we were with and, and we're going back to do capital again and, and, and thinking about, you know, I, I get the understanding of the bear canister because, you know, there, there are a fair amount of bears and in human interaction in Aspen Sopris and that especially in that area. Uh, so I guess, I don't, I don't know what Jace's question was going to be, uh, when it, as it pertained to the canister, but I think that, I think he was, he would be curious as to, you know, how many interactions, um, uh, do you, do you have Is it, is that, is that like still a major point of contention when people, when you encounter overnighters in some of these areas, is it the bear canister that's the biggest, um, and, and how far do you. Does it feel? Is it? It's, it's got to be tough, or or maybe is it does, it feel awkward to say, "Hey, do you have your bear on you?" Because you're not trying to go through somebody's pack, right? And make sure, do you have your ten essentials? And do you have, you know? So, how do you draw that line? What's the conversation you have with somebody um, to explain that?
1: Yeah, great question. I'm really glad you brought it up. And okay, I'm I'm going to try to pick apart and answer your questions here. But so first of all, what I can share is. Um, you know, when you're describing what a bear sack is to you, I mean, that's what I learned too, right? Like just, um, do a bear hang in a tree with your, with your stuff sack or whatever that is. And in some places that works, especially if you, you know, you get it essentially high enough off the ground and far enough from the tree, but to answer your question. So in the Maroon Bell Snowmass wilderness, we do require either a bear can or an ursac and, and, or any product approved by the interagency grizzly bear committee. Um, and remind me, I'll tell you a fun anecdote about that if, if you want to hear it, but here's the reason why, and here's why we take it so seriously. And it's because it just, it, it sort of reached this, um, very serious point at which at its height, we had, and this was right when I had arrived on the district, like over a hundred human bear incidents, um, reported in the Maroon Bells Snowmass Wilderness, including someone at Capitol Lake being attacked by a bear in their tent. And I, I that that's I mean, that's true, right? Like <laughs> that's that's the extent that it had gotten to. And so uh, that was really a breaking point just where we thought, look, this isn't doing bears any justice. It's not doing visitors any justice. And our traditional methods, i.e. bear hangs, they're not working. And so that was the point at which we went to that requirement. And again, like I I think Chris, you mentioned it earlier, just with the permit, not a decision that's taken lightly, but one that I think a lot of people felt like, geez, this is warranted. There's a lot of visitors here and and it's not working, right? Bears are getting into people food because bears do what bears do. And it's just, it's not good for anyone. So (laughs) we have that requirement now. And it is hard, right? Like that's a hard conversation on the trail for the visitor who doesn't have that appropriate food storage. It's hard for the ranger who's like looking at you, Patrick, or who, you know, whoever that is to say like, oh man, I'm about to make your day really hard. Like we turn people around. We do write tickets. None of us like it. I can speak for us to say like, none of us are out there getting excited to write a ticket. It's just that that particular, the, you know, the bear food storage just got so serious that our response has kind of commenced, not kind of it's commensurate with that. So to your question, Patrick, it's no fun. And we do ask, you know, like, Hey, what's your food storage plan. And it's not because we're trying to bust people. It's legitimately like, Hey, we're trying to keep you safe. We're trying to keep bears safe. The other people who are camping up there. And, and that's the history and context that got us there in a perfect world, we wouldn't be there, but, you know, we had bears, really clever bears, you know, getting into the kind of the traditional hangs, if you will, or people who, again, I i don't think with malicious intent, just hadn't traveled in bear country. I mean, I grew up in Nebraska. I remember the first time I backpacked in Colorado, did not hang my food. I mean, so like someone would have ripped their hair out if they'd gone into my camp, right? Like, what are you doing, Katie? Where are you storing your food? So I just try to remember that, but that, but that's the context, and it's it's tough, you know, because you're asking people to get equipment. We have people in the valley that rent them. Um, we actually will lend them for free at the ranger station, just because we want we want to set people and bears up for success. But it's tough. The conversations are hard, and it's, you know, it's just one of those situations that yeah, it's it's good until you're out there standing and talking to someone, and you're like, geez, you don't have a great food storage plan, and luckily oftentimes there are other people out there like, Hey, you can put your food in my bear can. Um, but yeah, I always just tell people like, trust me, it's for good reason. Um, and it just, it's like the classic situation that just escalated to that point, which is a bummer.
0: Do you run out on week on busy weekends or is you have pretty good store, uh, rental program for bear storage?
1: Yeah. Well, last year looked different because our um, our ranger station wasn't open, but <laughs> in a quote, regular year, whatever that will be in the future and in, in years past. Um, I don't remember running out. And we just upgraded our fleet, the Aspen Environment Foundation, which the Ski Co employees can, the, the employees can like voluntarily kick money into this fund, which is really cool. They do grants and AEF was generous enough to give us a grant to buy more bear cans and earth which is that brand of Kevlar bear resistant bags. So I think, you know, our, we could run out, but I, I think given where we are now, we have quite a few and we lend those at the welcome station too. That's really is
0: that cool. the station right there. When you make the turn on Aspen, when they make the right turn into Aspen. So, um,
1: okay. So the Maroon welcome center is what you would go through if you went up to the you know, Maroon Lake, the little booth. And then the Aspen Ranger Station is, as you make that right-hand turn to turn into Aspen. <laughs> and then the Carbondale Ranger Station, or the Sopris Ranger Station in Carbondale, we have some there. I say that just with the asterisk. I, I don't quite know what the Ranger stations will look like this upcoming year, but at the Maroon Welcome Station, we have those um, that we lend out. So what's the next
2: step then if, you know, has has there been any consideration or talk about, you know, when you, when you're talking about the lack of of bear canisters going into an area, and you feel like you're at that sort of inflection point of okay, this is this isn't working, has there been talk about, you know, bear boxes? I know you see in some in some campgrounds where they, you know rangers ones still like just install these giant metal boxes that keep bears out of it. Has there been any talk about that in some areas in, in your district?
1: Yeah. So in some of our, I guess in forest service speak, like front country, or that's not forest service speak, but some of our front country campgrounds, right. We, uh, we, ha- we do have bear boxes. So like the, yeah, the big hard sided metal containers, like Lincoln Creek, we install them up there. Uh, some of our other campgrounds have them, you know, as far as installing them, like up in the Maroon Bell snowmass wilderness personally and professionally, and then also because it's designated wilderness, right. That, that looks a little different for management. And so to install a big metal box in a designated wilderness area is definitely, you know, that's, that's a development. It it does kind of change that both the look and feel of that place, So that being said, I think there are areas that have done it. I'm thinking of Yosemite, if I'm not mistaken. So it's a tool that's in the toolbox. But for me, it would be further towards last resort in a designated wilderness, specifically because we're obligated to preserve, you know, that undeveloped natural character of that area. So Ideally, if the if the responsibility can be on the visitor and we can be successful, I really like that model. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. It's definitely yeah. a thought that's crossed my mind and it's been suggested and it's not a bad suggestion, but it's definitely in a, in a designated wilderness area. That's that's a layer that right. we're considering, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, I would, I would personally not like to see that back there. I just wondered if that was you know at some point like you said it's you get to the that one that line where somebody's like the last attack okay and now this bear is going to lose its life and and this hiker hopefully you know possibly could have or hopefully didn't yeah um just it's it's the things that you have to consider when you're in a position to balance it's it's really a tough job that you have to do to balance the keeping things wild and pristine and, and balancing human safety and sometimes human ignorance, right? <laughs> because bears, bears, like you said, bears wildlife do what they do and, and we're in their turf. And mm-hmm. um, that's really tough. I, I would personally not like to see that. But when it comes to like 2020, you know, what was, what was the biggest challenge for you talking about like this, the influx of people to the wilderness uh, as COVID hit? What was, I mean, in the wildfires, like this had to be a really crazy, crazy year for you.
1: Yeah, I I want to answer. I just want to go back. I want to share that the bear canister program has been really successful. I feel like that's a good bookend before we get too far away. So back to your question. I mean, we went from like what I described as like the height of that um, to the last couple of years. I think one year we didn't have any reported incidents. Um, Last year we had one non-serious one. So I think I'll, I'll just continue to stress like getting the word out, like hey this is a tool that works. This is a tool you need to use here and it's a good outcome. So um, I just, I thought that was a good, (laughs) good bookend. Okay. So 2020. Yeah. I mean, geez, I, I don't know Patrick, if I have words yet, but I'll try to narrow it down to just my professional experience, which was just really interesting. The, you know, I, I'm working with, um, this rock star who I work with named Wiley, who's helping me with some of the data. So I don't actually have the wilderness visitation numbers yet for 2020. So I'm kind of on the edge of my seat to see, you know, I, I have it in my mind, like I have some assumptions, but but I guess what I would share was, it, it I think what we're going to see is that there was more visitation in 2020. And certainly the narrative right now can be really negative. Like, oh, there's all these impacts and, you know, all of these problems. And sure, it presented some management challenges. But I guess I'll share this really cool experience I had outside the ranger station. I just happened to be walking, you know, walking out of the ranger station. I talked to this guy who had like gone and fished and caught his first fish ever. And he was like glowing, right? Like, here's this person who yes, 2020 presented all of these challenges and yet it it opened this opportunity for him to go and, and catch a fish, which for me is like, I'm so lucky. I grew up getting to do that. And here's this guy who is just like glowing from that experience. And I saw that, I saw that like, as I was out and about and talking to Rangers. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. And I'm like choosing to really focus on that. And I also think, you know, it, it did present some challenges for us as managers and for the recreating public who are maybe used to a place being quiet. And now there's a lot of people and that's change and that's hard. And, and what are we going to do? And what's that going to look like down the road? So that was just kind of me verbally processing, but I I saw some like really beautiful moments in it. And also I think some challenges that we're going to have to kind of figure out how we want to move forward. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it was just really, it's just so interesting. There's like so many interesting conversations around COVID and recreation. And I'm just right now kind of in that like perspective taking mode of like, whoa, I'm still trying to take that all in and, and sort of look forward to see what's next. But it's different, right? I don't know. I know not, nothing I'm saying is profound, but um, it's just really interesting. It's <laughs> so sorry. That was like a soapbox there. But.
3: Yeah, that was great. I think something related that, you know, someone talked to me about was, you know, everything was shut down um, in terms of like big venues. You couldn't go sit and watch a Rockies game. You couldn't go to a concert at Red Rock. So all these people from Denver were out for the first time. I mean, plus we had tons of of out-of-state visitors too, who maybe normally some of them would have gone to other countries for trips. If I can day trip something, I'll usually day trip it um, in the sense that, you know, it kind of leaves less impact and I don't mind getting up early and getting home late. Saturday afternoons, driving back to Denver on I-70, normally in the summer are busy. There was no one on the road. Everyone went out and stayed all weekend. Sunday afternoons, the worst I'd ever seen. Just hours sitting on I seventy. So it was, uh, it was really different. how You could tell that people had gone out and were out camping. The volume was so different. It was just really strange to me. So, yeah, I think it'll be interesting for you to see, and for kind of all of us who are out there a lot to see how uh, the next few years as we move, hopefully oh post COVID. <laughs>
0: looked up so one one data i look at as an economist was to look at the sales tax numbers from each of these metropolitan areas because legislators were asking me about advice like how to do state stimulus or what they should do and i said you know we have really high local sales taxes all these cities are gonna get crushed and the april 2020 sales tax numbers were just like 70 percent of what they were april 2019 and so you look at the brecken ridges and the tellurides and like the copper mountains that had like five percent of the sales tax revenue in april that they did the april before so i was Throwing these big flags, like we need to support cities somehow. Take some state stimulus money and give it to cities. But then like two months later, sales tax was completely rebounded in all these in all these small cities and all these small towns, because the same effect you said, Tornado Man, everyone just started to flood to the mountains instead of taking their plane ticket trips.
1: Hmm. Yeah, it's just I think it's gonna be really I'm so curious about Tornado Man. I don't want to lose track of that. I love that nickname. I'm so curious. The Helen Hunt want to be this concept of what sticks and what doesn't. You know, like you know the people who I I'm so I guess what I'm saying is I'm so curious, kind of seeing what I think right now anecdotally in the wilderness, but just you know visually what seemed like a a a spike in recreation. I'm curious what sticks, and I saw this report, which when my computer um, comes back on, I'll look it up, but. There was a, I, what I think is a really interesting demographic, demographic shift in visitors. And for me personally, I'm like finding a lot of hope in that. And I'm curious just to see, to see what sticks, I guess, you know, if, if it'll swing back and, and folks who may be engaged with recreation or the outdoors who hadn't before, if that'll stick or if it won't. And I know that could probably be triggering for people who aren't, you know, it's, it's tough, right? Cause that's more people and people are used to solitude and all, you know, all these different th- personal things we have around these public lands, but professionally, I, and, and personally, I get really excited to see that there are people who haven't maybe engaged in these places before or with these places before. And, I like that as a person who works for the public to see that, but I also fully understand that that's, you know, that it may present some additional challenges of just more people in spaces where there haven't been that many people before. So again, I, I, I'm sort of verbally processing, but I think it'll just be kind of interesting. And Chris, I love your data numbers nerd, if I can say that to, to you, just like from the economist perspective and, Andrew, like what you're saying, just your observations of being out and about and like seeing that shift, you know, just all those observations and like what is all the, you know, trying to put it all together. It just it's fascinating. And I'm kind of curious. On my good days, I'm curious. Some days I feel defeated, but um curious to see kind of where it all goes.
0: You mentioned you had some like anecdotes about how like there's new social norms, kind of some kind of the hikers are kind of regulating the bad behavior of other hikers. Could you Some anecdotes or stories, like you even mentioned on one email that they're actually doing better jobs than what the Rangers can do (laughs) because it's kind of like self-regulation of the.
1: Yeah, so Chris, what you're referring to is, um, you know, something we've observed up at Conundrum, and if I can describe it, it's that there's sort of a, I guess, a social enforcement of. You know, the permit system and bear cans and poop behavior and you know all of these things that we ask of people up at conundrum. And in some ways, I think that could be a really good thing, right? Like the the norm at conundrum is we take really good care of this place and we know that this permit system is in place to protect it. And so, you know, we're there's buy-in, right? And I I think that's a good thing, right? Like I'd rather have that be the norm up there, then, like we described, it's really hard to be a wilderness ranger up there and have those hard conversations and write a ticket or ask people to leave who don't have a permit. So, in some ways, I think that's neat if that's the norm. What I hope is not happening is like a public shaming, right? I hope it's a respectful conversation of like, hey, Patrick, I'm so, I am legitimately glad you're here. <laughs> And I'm curious what you're going to do to store your food. And, oh, geez, you're brand new to backpacking and you've never camped in bear country. I'm going to, hey, why don't you put your food in my bear can? I, again, you guys are, I, I'm an optimist. I really, you know, I, I hope people are treating each other well up there. And I hope that's kind of the culture and the norm. And I think it is. You know and when i first heard that that was happening up there it's like oh this is great right like the public is enforcing this rather than us that's that's like truly shows that people believe in it and have bought in but then as i thought about it more and kind of took a different perspective i just thought i hope that's not like making new people feel excluded or feeling stupid or ashamed if they show up there and like we said right like for no bad intention that they they didn't have the information. So. I don't think that's happening. It's just, you know, another perspective I took when I thought about it later, but I I sense generally that (laughs) there's like a good respectful vibe up there. People are looking out for each other, but also for the place. And I love that because it's, it's such an amazing place. People love it. And that's why, you know, that's why it kind of, it has a permit system, right. It got really popular. And so,
0: but that's like level of psychology and like social interaction, yeah. communications, like all in the one, like there's the tactful way to do something. And there's like the, so the great anecdote I always teach in my classes, like my cousin worked at like a gap or American Eagle, one of those retail, like Abercrombie and Fitch stores. And she was taught if she ever sees someone shoplifting, not to jump in their face and say, Hey, you a shoplifter, shoplifter. She was taught to say, Oh you no, know, the t-shirts are buy one, get one free. That would match the jeans that you selected. <laughs> and so it's a clever way of saying, "I caught you. You're in trouble." But I'm going to tell you, "I know, I know, I caught you," and then back off and let you do the right thing without, like, you know, smarting them and getting their face and getting, ca- causing controversy. And so I wonder if that's that's always my anecdote of like, how do you, how do you teach someone in the wilderness not to leave their toilet paper on the trail without yelling at them? Katie, you mentioned you had a bear story or an anecdote you wanted to tell us
1: oh yeah i have lots of bear stories but <laughs> <laughs> the, one, the one i was going to share was um uh, uh, so okay i'm going to deviate but i i used to listen to armchair expert and they have the fact checker at the end and i was like oh my gosh i wonder if these guys will fact check me some of these you, you might want to fact check this but <laughs> um so my understanding is that um outside of yellowstone there's like a facility if you will and bears that have gotten into trouble a lot of people call them problem bears but i'm like they're not problem bears they just you know did what bears do and got in trouble in people terms but anyway the, those bear there's a facility where they take bears that have been habituated and which is just again a bummer um but what again so i'm always looking for silver linings they're like the product testers those bears in that facility so bear cans or ursacs or some of these products they'll they're like those bears are the testers because they're so um adept at getting into getting into things so i thought that was kind of a neat anecdote that it's kind of a silver lining like they you know it's not ideal that that's where they the bears landed but um someone shared that with me and i was like oh that's i don't know i guess it's just a story that i liked
0: (laughs) so the bears that are habituated or whatever become the guinea pigs for testing out bear equipment (laughs)
1: Yes. And let me be really clear, not in all cases, like we, you know, uh, oftentimes, like in this area, they're euthanized, which is really sad and heartbreaking. However, my understanding is that that facility outside of Yellowstone, that that is like a, in some cases, that's where those bears will be relocated rather than, you know, being relocated or euthanized. So, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I got a buddy who's a who's a, also works for the forest service up near the Helena area of Montana. And so he wanted me to ask you about, uh, do we, do we log as is, is much of that, much of that wilderness logged of, of the wilderness of the, of the, uh, with the Aspen Sopras district at all?
1: No, no. And by law, the wilderness act, um, so areas that are congr- like, so designated wilderness areas, they're designated, by Congress, so that's a congressional act to get that designation, and that designation prevents commercial logging oh. in designated wilderness. Yeah. And so that's, that's you know of of you know that's one of the um, protections that uh, is offered when a place is congressionally designated that's, as that's wilderness. wilderness.
0: Big W. He- my Ranger yeah. from Montana says big W versus little W. My Ranger buddy from Montana says big W versus little W wilderness. And what is he was he what is he speaking to? Is he talking about the congressional designated wilderness, big W.
1: Exactly, Chris. So what again, this uh, yeah. So if someone says big W, like capital W wilderness, they're likely referring to an area that has been designated through an act of Congress as Wilderness and then, therefore, has the protection articulated in that law. However, I think it's important to note, you know, and this has been a paradigm shift I've had that wilderness. By law, it has, you know, that law gives a a definition of that and and that specific protection. But I also just think it's important to realize that, like, the word wilderness, lowercase w, people, that means all kinds of things to people. And that's okay too, right? Like, (laughs) you know, sometimes people say, like, well, that isn't wilderness or that is. And I just thought, like, the capital W wilderness, it's designated and that gives it protection under the law. But I just like to acknowledge that, like, that word wilderness people have their own connection with it and narratives. And I love that. So that's kind of the distinction.
0: And so in big, big W wilderness, you can't have wheels or chainsaws or any struck really anything, right? What drone, no drones.
1: Yeah. And the way I describe it is if you read the wilderness act, you know, I, I, I think the over it's overarching, right. Trying to protect these values that people saw in it, right? Like natural and undeveloped and opportunities for solitude and unconfined. And so those prohibitive uses, I, I they're a sticking point for people. And I understand that. And the way I always describe it is like those, those prohibitions are in place to kind of not kind of to really protect some of those values that people sought to kind of codify in those lands. Yeah. So I've Motorot, read. yeah, you're right. You picked out some good ones.
0: One of the ones that articles I read trying to research for this episode was if, if an area is so crowded that it doesn't have access to solitude, it would actually violate the Congressional or whatever U.S. Wilderness Act. So how would that work? Like it, it's just so overused that we're violating a, a U.S. law or, or how does that work?
1: Oh, boy, this is this is a great question. Um. So as I described in the Wilderness Act, outstanding opportunities for solitude is something we're legally mandated to protect in those areas. So it's interesting, right? Like you're, you're a professor and a scholar, it sounds like. And so you're saying like we're legal, legally obligated in this area to protect those outstanding opportunities for solitude. And yet solitude is not you know it it's um what's the word I'm looking for like it's not as specific I think as one would want it to be and and solitude might look different to you than to me than to others and so I think there is an interesting conversation in the community about you know the the community of land managers and other folks involved in wilderness about what does that look like to protect those outstanding opportunities for solitude
0: so I want to end with the question that Jace always asks from our other co-hosts, uh, he always wonders if you had a chance to put a billboard on I-70, or for your case, let's say a billboard on 82, you know, coming south from Glenwood Springs or going over Independence Pass, and everyone that was gonna be hiking Capitol Lake or Snowmass Lake or Four Pass Loop or the Maroon Bells or Conundrum Hot Springs would read, and you had a chance to design that billboard, what would Ranger Nelson's billboard look like? What advice would you put on that billboard?
1: Jeez, that is such a great question. A billboard that everyone visiting a backcountry would read?
0: Yep. Is it leave no praise principles or is this a quick message? Is it a poop flowchart? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. I love that question. It's so hard. But I feel like everything I'm thinking is like, big picture humanity. (laughs) Oh, jeez, Chris. What would my billboards say?
0: It couldn't be like the New York, like terrorism after 9-11. If you see something, if you see something, say something.
1: (laughs) No, it would be like, I don't know. I I feel like I need to like think tank that. (laughs) Um, It would probably be something to the effect of like, again this is going to need to be workshopped but something the fact of like I'm really glad you're going to visit and I need your help to take care of it you know I don't (laughs) know like it's such a community collective effort so I need to workshop that but I've literally said that out on the trail to people and it's genuine like I am glad you're here and (laughs) the future of this place depends on you and I that's probably sounds really cliche I wouldn't choose the poop flow chart.
0: (laughs) That's good messaging. That's got, we're in it together. It's your job to kind of help everyone out and maybe the website to the video that you you mentioned.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Chris, I'd love to sit in on one of your classes.
0: Okay. Zoom, I can see, yeah. Or I can send you the chapter of my book I'm trying to work on about the tragedy of the commons. and Because I think you'd really enjoy the, because the first person to win the Nobel Prize for economics was a female was Eleanor Ostrom. You should look her up. She basically traveled the world and looked at all these situations like in India and these small villages that basically regulated bad behavior through non-permits and non-private regulation. Just and so she won the Nobel prize for these unique situations where these small villages maybe regulate, you can only cut down three trees. And if you cut down four trees, you're shamed by the village and, and you know, during the you know, Sunday dinner. And so that that's a mechanism to regulate better behavior. I'd love to have a whole podcast about the economics of the commons and leave no trace. And
1: Oh my gosh. I just want to be a fly on the wall for that because I feel like I have so much to learn. And it's really just like speaking to me in a way that I, I just, I, I, it's like the billboard, right? Like, I'm glad you're here. And also <laughs> we're in this together, right? Like this Truly for this to work, it can't just be me, Katie, sitting in my office or Veronica, my awesome wilderness ranger. You know what I mean? Like, that's just not a model that's going to work. So I love that, Chris. I, I want to just sit and be in the silent <laughs> peanut gallery for that because I find it fascinating. So thanks for sharing that.
0: The other one I could think of is like Denver Water here on your Denver Water Bill. It says their, their slogan for Denver Water is use only what you need, which is mm. a clever way of saying don't waste water, but use water in such a way that you need it. It's not, it's not like again yelling at you, but it's reminding you gently that maybe you don't need maybe so I like I like kind of your slogan about we're glad you're here, we need your help to protect it.
1: I picture rainbows and unicorns on this billboard. No. <laughs> in my optimistic, idealistic view. <laughs>
0: Well, thanks for taking two hours on your Tuesday and chatting with us.
1: I see. I just want to sincerely thank you guys because I wasn't kidding when I said this fills my cup. Like I just, it, it's just so nice to like talk to someone from outside <laughs> my immediate world here and just hear your perspectives. And so I, I mean that with sincerity, like it's just, it fills my cup to talk to you guys.
0: So thank you.
3: Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for coming. And, um, it's a great
0: conversation. Cool. Well, I hope to talk to you again. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Reach out. And yeah, in the meantime, happy trails and holler if you're in this neighborhood. We'll get a coffee or a beer. Sounds great. Okay. Take care, you guys.
0: Yeah.